If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at this chapter, chapter in its entirety. As you are flipping, I will remind you of two things. One, remind you that we have children's ministry from nursery all the way up to second grade. Those were where all the kids suddenly disappeared too. Um, there is nothing I enjoy more than seeing uh, our kids and, and as they sing with us and participate in worship with us. And then along with that, it is always a blessing to uh, know that they are going and that they are hearing the word and being challenged by that. And so let you know that we do offer that, though children are always welcome in our service and we love to have them here. Along with that, I will let you know that we have offering plates in the back of the building uh, to give your, your tithes and your offerings. You can also do that online through tunnelhill.org slash give. You may also notice that there is a lot of baked goods uh, out on the table. Those are um, provided by our missions team, our missions committee, as we are, are actively moving towards a, a trip to Brazil in really just a little over a month. Um, and so everything out there is available to take home with a love offering and all anything that is given for that love offering will help pay for airplane tickets and, ho- and, and places to stay and food and all of those things for the trip to Brazil that's happening in about a month. Uh, our church has a partnership with missionaries in southern Brazil, and we are going as a team with another church in Kentucky to do ministry in a small town called Dois Hermaus, which is uh, Portuguese for two brothers. And this is a, a, a historically German committee, or excuse me, community, and uh, there we're going to be helping a brand new church plant to do some outreach and, and just kind of draw some attention to uh, the church and the ministries of the church. So this is a very worthy thing. Um, There's some really good looking stuff out there. Um, My own uh, homemade country white bread is out there in whole loaves and uh, it is very good. And I I don't mean that to be braggadocious, but it's worth it's worth the the don't the the gift. Um, So please take advantage of that. We are in first Timothy chapter four. Today we're going to be reading verses one through verse 16, which is the entire chapter. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And the word of God says this, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away, fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared, shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women on the other hand discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is the sa- for it is for this that we labor 
and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourselves as an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that you may progress and be, that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. Please be seated. Have you ever heard the saying, choose a job that you will love and you will never work a day in your life? Undoubtedly, you had a high school counselor tell you that or a parent or someone else. And and at some point, you've probably heard in some way, shape or form, choose a job you'll love and you'll never work a day in your life. I was curious as as to where this came from. And, and you can get online and you can kind of start to look for the, the origins of quotes and all of that type of stuff. And, and what was interesting was, is a lot of people wanted to quote this back all the way to like Confucius or some sort of ancient Chinese proverb. And what was kind of interesting is Confucius kind of said something like that, but not really. It was really, it was, it was similar to it, but not really that. And that when they really do the research, this statement goes back to a professor at Princeton. And in an alumni kind of magazine for Princeton back in 1982, he was quoted as having quoted another professor, one that he called an old timer about this quote. And the original quote was, find something that you love to do and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And so it's kind of funny to me because something that we like think has been around for centuries and centuries was really, you know, is younger than I am. And, and we get the, the, stay, the saying and we understand why you might say it. And there's good things to this saying, you know, if you have a job that you love, you know, you're not going to hate going to that job. There's going to, you know, it's not going to suck the life out of you. And that's all fine and well and good. But there's a couple of problems with this quote as well. First of all, I'm sure that even you might agree, maybe you have the job you love, and even you might say, even when you have the job you love, the job you dream of, there are still days that you go to work. That you can have your absolute dream job, but there's always going to be aspects of any job that you don't particularly like, and there are going to be days that you would much rather be sipping a nice cool drink on a beach somewhere than showing up to a job. Is that fair? I think so. But there's another problem, and it's kind of the one I want to think about a little bit more today. And and, and that is this, that that it presents a misunderstanding of the word work. See, in this quote, we are given this idea that work is bad and something that we should be avoiding. That if you find a job you love, that you won't have to do anything like you won't have to do this unsavory thing called work. Work in this quote becomes synonymous with toil or drudgery and something that should ultimately be avoided. And this becomes a problem because when we look at the idea of work, 
And when we look at work as a bad thing in any way, shape, or form, it can make us want to avoid things that when sometimes the things that are work are not only good, but good for us, especially when we talk about being a follower of Jesus. In 2022, we had a picture out in the vestibule. If you'll look out in our vestibule, you'll see a large picture. You maybe noticed it, maybe you've never noticed it, but the current one says, Love Further. And it's a challenge, it's kind of our challenge for the year. In 2023, that's what year it is, I'll get there. In 2023, our challenge is to love people and to really love people by going that extra mile that Jesus talked about. Last year, our our quote, or last year, our kind of statement was what came from this passage, which was labor and strive. Well, see, here's where things kind of get there, like a hiccup kind of happens, where if, if you kind of indoctrinate yourself in like a saying like this, that the idea of laboring and striving is bad, and then you're saying that, and then the Bible is telling us we should labor and strive for these things, there creates this kind of cognitive dissonance. That kind of makes us start to wonder, well, does God want something that's not good for us? Is he just wanting us to do something that we don't like? And a lot of times what usually happens with that is we jettison the labor and strife part. And we don't think we should have to do anything we don't want to do as it relates to serving the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because the work and the mission of God isn't going to get done if none of us are willing to put the work in. And so as we look at our text today, I want us to kind of walk through this text and see exactly what Paul is telling us and exactly what he means by this idea of laboring and striving. And my hope is is that we will realize that, that Paul's call and really God's call through Paul to labor and strive for the sake of the ministry is not a call to toil or to drudgery, but an opportunity to walk closely with God, to be used by Him, and ultimately to be shared in His joy, or to share in His joy. So let's dive into the text a little bit and think about what it means to labor and strive. And and as we look in the text, you know, the the statement to labor and strive is found in verse 10. If we look at verse 10, it says, for it is it is for this that we labor and strive. Well, we have to ask the question for what? What is the this that he's talking about? And to answer that question, we have to go back a few verses and go to verse seven. If you look at verse seven, it says this, it says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of of godliness. And let me tell you something, if you didn't like the words labor and strive, you probably don't like the word discipline either. Because with discipline, we often associate bad stuff. Discipline means getting grounded, discipline means getting spanked, discipline means getting, you know, your name put on the board. I'm sure they don't even do that anymore. You know, when I was a kid, you got your name on the board and that was that was a warning. That was that warning that said, the teacher is now thinking about you. And then you'd get a check. Uh-oh is right. Uh-oh is going to parent. Uh-oh means my parents are going to probably hear about this. And one time I saw a kid get three checks. I thought he was going to jail. 
I was waiting. I was waiting. We didn't have school resource officers then, but I was waiting for the cops to show up on the door. We don't like the word discipline because discipline, we think, means getting us in trouble. But the discipline that Paul is talking about here is disciplining for the sake of godliness. What disciplining means is that we have a desire to be more like Jesus and we are willing to do the things that are necessary to achieve or to be more like Jesus, to achieve that goal. See, when we discipline ourselves in most areas of life, what that means is we are working towards something and we are going to do the work and, and, and get rid of the things that aren't supposed to be there and put in the things that are supposed to be, be there to get to that place. If you are training to be a nurse and you are going to discipline yourself to not be able to, to not have to sleep for 48 hours and you're going to have to discipline yourself to know these things and to do all these things. If you're wanting to run a 5K or a marathon, you're going to discipline yourself to run when you need to and to do the things that you need to and to eat the way you need to. When we discipline ourselves, we are, are taking advantage uh, of all of the opportunities in order to achieve a particular goal. I like how Paul explained discipline to the church in Corinth. He uses a, uh, a sports analogy, which is really kind of what he's also using here to the letter in t- to Timothy. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24, we read this. Do, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Self-control is the kind of buzzword or the linking word to the word discipline. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, not as without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, there's this discipline analogy that we see, this self-control, this discipline is really found in both passages about the the comparison of godly discipline, that idea of, of, of holiness or sanctification or even piety connected to physical discipline, to be stronger, to do the things necessary, to be stronger, faster, quicker, able to achieve the goal, able to win in the competition. The idea here is that in order to do what you want to be able to do, if you want to win a race, if you want to win a a boxing match or any sort of competition, in the same way, if you want to be godly, to have a strong witness, to serve Jesus with all your heart, if you want those things, then you have to be willing to do what is necessary to do it. You have to be willing to train your body or train your mind to achieve those goals. If you are running a race or fighting in a boxing match, then you have to be able to take aim, to have the endurance, to control your body, to persevere and push through even when you're tired. And in the same way, if you want to become a servant of God, a strong witness of God, God, to be a godly person, then you have to be nourished in the Word, to hold to sound doctrine, to do the work of ministry. You may ask yourself the question, do I really have to do that? 
Can't I just love Jesus without all of this work? Without all the discipline and, and, and the labor? Can I, can, I just, can I just be a Christian and just kind of go with the flow? Well, you can for a while. But I want you to look at our passage and, and, and look at what the alternative is that Paul describes. Go all the way back to chapter 1 of chapter, uh, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 4. And it begins with these words. My paper's not cooperating. It says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. We ask, why do they fall away? And the reality is, it's because there are people who listen to and begin to believe these deceitful spirits and these doctrines of demons. Paul describes this elsewhere in in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus 4.14 says this, it says, As a result, we are no longer children tossed around here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craft." craftiness of deceitful scheming see in that passage too in ephesians 4 he's talking about discipline and and the reality is a lack of godly discipline leaves us open to be deceived and carried away by things that are not from god so the question is can i be can i just be a lazy christian can i just be a go with the flow just hope the good just hope it happens type of christian and the reality is is maybe for a while but if we do not discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness there are evil forces and evil people in this world who will not look evil they will not show up with a cape and a long mustache and a top hat they will not come dressed as skeletor or lex luthor or someone else not good they will look like your friends and they will look like your co-workers and they will even look like your family and they will begin to feed you things that are not from god that sound like they are from god in order to lure you away to think things that God never intended you to think, to believe things that are not true and to do things that are not motivated out of love for God, but more likely out of love for self. Specifically in our passage, Paul talks about worldly fables. And, and, and I don't know specifically what he's talking about. These may be superstitious stories. These may be sayings. I think in today's language, these worldly fables fit old, only for old women. And that is, since we don't have any old women here, I can just talk about it. Because um, I know there, none of the women here are old. Um, this is the part where I really have to look at my paper and not look at anybody else in the crowd. The things, I think now the thing that we would associate that with is that stupid, ungodly wisdom that exists on social media. Because there is a lot of people that post a lot of garbage on social media that sounds good, but is not godly. And I think Paul is telling Timothy, have nothing to do with that. Have nothing to do with the worldly wisdom 
with the worldly stories that people tell that, that are supposed to have a, that really ultimately have a worldly moral to the story. He says, have nothing to do with these worldly fables. And then he also talks about the hypocrisy of liars. And the hypocrisy of liars is false teachings told by people who aren't even doing those things. They want to sound morally superior to you. But the reality is, is they are hypocrites and they are feeding you a false gospel with a false following, with a false path to follow. A result of them both being legalism towards others and lawlessness towards self. And that's really some fruit that I want you to look at when you, when someone is trying to influence you and how you should live and how you should prioritize your life and and, and what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus. Ask yourself the question, are they trying to give you rules that they would never follow? Or may you notice that, that they're telling you to do things, but you know for a fact that when the chips are down and they are put to the test, they're probably not going to do them themselves. The way the passage puts it at the very beginning, and I really found this to be an interesting phrase, an interesting way to do it. It says these people, these hypocrites who have their conscience seared. And I, I thought that's such a great image because when you, when you get, if you've been burnt or if you get something really seared, it kills all the nerve endings. It kills all of that sense of touch. And so to have your conscience sealed means that you cannot in any way recognize your own faults and your own sin. I'll be honest with you. There are people like that in this world. And they are very good at pointing out everything you've done wrong. But they really, truly, don't think they've done anything wrong. And we need to pray for those people. We don't need to judge those people. We don't need to be mean to those people. We need to pray for those people because they have been enslaved by these false doctrines and the trickery of men. Jesus talks about this when he talks to the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, verse 4, he says this, that they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And so we, and, and, and guys, you, you may look at this stuff and you may be like, oh, I would never, I would never get tricked by someone like that. Yes, you would. If it's a family member, if it's a close friend, if it's a guy or gal that you hang out with, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, yes, you would. All of us are susceptible to that, especially if we are unwilling to discipline ourselves. So that goes to the question, how do we discipline ourselves? Well, let's look at what Paul writes. Let's start in verse 12 of of chapter 4. He says this, he says, let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love and faith and purity, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. What, what Paul is really doing here is he is flipping the script on the example that we get of the, the hypocrite and the false teacher. See, the, the hypocrite and the false teacher, the one that is trying to take you away from pursuit of Christ, that is someone, if you remember I said, someone who is going to promote this idea of legalism towards others and lawlessness towards self. 
They are going to be hyper-judgmental and hyper-critical of everything you do and ready and eager to point out everything wrong with you while at the same time not thinking that there's anything wrong with them and that all of their behavior is justified. By contrast, the one who is pursuing Christ, the one who is disciplining his body and disciplining his mind for the sake of godliness is going to set a high standard for themselves that standard being the person in the work of Jesus, while at the same time showing mercy towards others. This is what Paul means when he says that we are to be an example of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. See, instead of hypocrisy, we are called to be an example of the faith. Instead of doing, selling people to do stuff and then not doing it, we just do it and, and, and show people what it is. Paul himself was, a, was an example of this when he said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. How do we do this? By putting in the work. Look at the very next verse. So in verse 12, we see prove yourself to be an example of all these things. In verse 13, he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This is how we are nourished in the word of faith, or the words of faith and of sound doctrine. We are not going to become more disciplined by magic. You do not pass through the baptismal waters and suddenly become a Christian. We do not, well, you do become a Christian through giving your life to Jesus, but we don't suddenly start acting like a Christian. We do not suddenly start acting like a Christian because we, we download a Bible app. We do not just become a Christian because it just happens. We have to put in the work. We are called to study the Word of God, both on our own and, and as a group and as a, a church family, the public reading of the Scriptures. We need to challenge ourselves and challenge each other to speak the truth in love. Verse 15 says that we are to take pains in these things, to be absorbed by them. You ever think about that, that, that God is calling? This is the standard that Paul is telling us. like, hey, we want you to grow. We want you to be disciplined. We want you to be an example to the faith, to everybody who absorbs you. And you know what? You need to be all about that life. We get to be all about a lot of things in life. We can be all about our job. I get it. Maybe I'm the biggest hypocrite there is on that one because I, I tend to eat, breathe, and sleep this job. My, sometimes I am too emotionally caught up in this job. I get it. But we all do that. We get caught up in a job. We become all about a job. We become all about a, a sports team. We become all about our, our education or, or whatever it may be. And that happens to us. Paul is saying, listen, those are not bad things, but there's a better thing. And if there's something you need to be all about, it is living for Christ and disciplining your life so that you reflect who Jesus is. I was struck by those words to take pains in these things, be absorbed by them. And so I went back to the original language and, and it's not, they're words that mean, they mean that, but they mean kind of an interesting thing because what the first thing is, says take pains in these things, that means practice it. Do it. And I had that idea of doing it in repetition over and over again. We need to actively do the things that the Bible tells us to do. Like share your faith. Like abstain from fleshly lusts. Like speak the truth in love. And the hardest one, I think, 
forgiving people. We're not only supposed to do these things, but there's an idea of repetition there. That we do them and we keep doing them and we keep doing them and we keep doing that. It says, it says, take pains in these things, be absorbed in these things. And the word absorbed is actually just the word to be. So what he's essentially saying is, here is, we need to do what the Bible tells us. We need to keep doing it. We need to practice it. We need to repeat it and have repetition and repetition until we are that. In my younger, skinnier days, I played football. I didn't say I was good at playing football. I just played it. And in football, one of the big things you do is you do the same play again and again and again. You do the same repetition again, again, and again. And this is true of basketball, and this is true of of football, and this is true of baseball, that you repeat and repeat and repeat, and you repeat it until what? Until it's perfect. Until you don't even have to think about it anymore. Right? If you've been trained to do something for a while, you do it so you get such to a point that that you don't have to think, okay, I need to I need to be like this and then I need to kind of get up and then I need to if it's doing this, I need to go this way, well, if it, and then this. You know, if you if you actually had to think through the whole process of being a linebacker, you'd never tackle anybody. But you train them and you train them and you train them until they just do it. And that's what Paul means when he says, take pains in these things, be absorbed in them. We need to actively, consciously be obedient to the Word to the point that we don't even have to think about it anymore. Well, if you've ever played a sport, that takes time, doesn't it? It takes time with Scripture too. It takes time with a disciplined life as well. And we need to do these things and find ourselves at a place where we can do them without thinking, or more importantly, find ourselves at a place that when people come to us with some new wind of doctrine, some new gospel that's not a gospel, some new trickery of men, we so know the truth and what it means to walk in the truth that when they are speaking, we already know that what they are saying is contrary to Scripture and we reject it. Lastly, Paul instructs Timothy to exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given him. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tells us this. It says, but each one of us is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. It goes on in in chapter 12 to talk about all the different manifestations of the spirit, these things we call spiritual gifts. And I want you to know, first and foremost, every single person in this room, if you are in Christ, has been given some sort of gift or gifts from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the deal. You're going to get a little bit of Josh's opinion on spiritual gifts. We could take a spiritual gift survey. We could take a dozen spiritual gift surveys. I've got some that are one page. I've got some that are 50 pages. I am sure there are some on the Internet. We can do an eight-week study on spiritual gifts and and talk about each one and how you might know you have them and what that might look like in ministry in the church. We can do all of those things on and on until Jesus comes back. But if you want to know what your gifting is and how to use your gifting, meaning not neglecting the gift that God has given you, then you just need to start serving in the church. That's it. 
You don't need to take a survey. You don't need a Bible study. Not that you don't need Bible study, but you don't need that Bible study. Start serving. As the song we sang before I came up here said, here I am, send me. Send me, O Lord, send me. Where do you need me, God? What ministries need to get done? What ministries are not getting done? Where does our church need help? Where is the blind spots in the church's ministry? There's really no other way. Because you won't really know what your spiritual gifts are until you start serving. You can take a quiz and you may, it may say that you have the gift of prophecy and teaching, but that's just because you're not scared to talk in front of people. By contrast, it may say that you have the gift of helps and being behind the scenes, and that's just because you're terrified to talk in front of people. But you know what? God is way bigger than our fears and our preferences. So if you want to know what your spiritual gift is, start serving. Offer to help with a ministry. Ask to teach a class, maybe just for one Sunday. Hey, I'm trying to figure out what God's calling me to do. Can I teach Sunday school next week? No commitment, just next week. Can host a home group. Teach a home group. Do it for a day. Do it for an entire term. Call somebody. Visit a church member. Encourage them. Show up to go share your faith. Meet with somebody to share their faith together. If you really want to know what your spiritual gifts are, and if you really want to start exercising them, then you've got to start doing them. Because you won't really know if you're too scared to try. But you have a gift. And God gave you a gift or gifts for a reason. And God has a desire for you to work and to serve within the church. And God is wanting to do great things for the kingdom in you and through you. You may say to yourself, Josh, this sounds like a lot of work. You're getting it. Because here's the deal. Paul is calling Timothy, and I really truly believe that God is calling us to labor and strive to be disciplined for the sake of godliness. And that there's a reason for that. And let me tell you this, I believe beyond the shadow of my doubt that the result of the work, of the labor and the striving is worth it. There is no greater feeling than having a large project and and seeing it done. Whether you are working on your car and finally your car is fixed and running, whether you are cleaning out your garage and suddenly your garage is neat and orderly, you have mowed the yard and done the weed eating and now your yard is immaculate and beautiful, you have taken that, that awful thing that my family calls a craft closet and you have cleaned it and organized it and now it is beautiful and you know where your pipe cleaners are and your puff balls and your glue gun. When you do all when you do that and you look back at that closet and you go, that's beautiful. That feels good, doesn't it? When you take a step back and you've been doing the work of ministry and you've been serving the Lord and you've been diligent to discipline yourself and to be an example of the faith and you see the fruit of what God is doing in your life, that the lost are getting found, that people are growing in their faith, that, that, that the flesh is being put off and the spirit is being put on in not only your life, but in the lives of others. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Look at verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, he says, 
Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. I'll tell you. It is a good feeling. There's a point in my life where I wasn't living for the Lord and, and, there, and I'm not saying I'm perfect now by any stretch of the imagination, but where God started doing a work in my life and, and I remember when I started really getting back into the Word and, and trying to study and trying to learn, I would go back to the same place that I used to drink beer with my friends because it was a restaurant. But instead of drinking beer, I would have a Coke and instead of goofing off with a bunch of buddies, I would sit there and it would be me and like a plate of fries and a Coke and I would sit there and I would read the word. And finally, one of these waitresses that had known me the whole time went went up to me and she goes, what's happened to you? Because you are not the person you used to be. And I knew, and she, she's like, I'm not judging you. I'm not saying you're a bad guy or anything like that. But I knew, I knew how you used to act. I knew kind of the old you. And I see what you're doing now, sitting here reading the Bible. What happened? That's a wonderful feeling. It is a wonderful thing to know that God can take you wherever you are right now. The sins you're battling, the frustrations you're experiencing, the life that you may not be very happy with, the attitudes that you seem to can't shake. And that when we just hand ourselves over to him and allow God to start working in us and allow God to start disciplining us and working through us, that there's progress. And it's slow. And, it's, and, and sometimes it's quick and sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. But to know that, they're, that, that eventually someone's going to say, I see a difference in you. That's a wonderful feeling. And that's worth it. It's worth the work. It is worth the sacrifice to have those moments. But then even beyond that, verse 16, he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teachings. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. See, not only is the work worth it because the progress in your life will be evident, but also because when you do the work of ministry, when you discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, it will lead other people to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Maybe it's because you share. Maybe it's because you people observe you. And they come and ask, and they, or they go ask someone else. I have no idea how it'll happen. There's a, a, a multitude of ways. But the Scriptures are clear. That if we pay attention, if we give attention to the teachings, if we persevere in these things, if we labor and strive for the sake of godliness, that God's will will be done and the lost will get found. And brothers and sisters, that is worth it. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand things. We are not saying that you need to get your life right and then you will be saved. We are not saved because we discipline ourselves. We are not saved because we are godly. The reality is, is in and of ourselves, we can never be those things. See, it all has to start with a relationship with Christ Jesus. See, the saving The salvation that he talks about in verse 16 is not a salvation that we earn. It is a salvation that is a gift to us through the gospel. 
And the gospel is quite literally this, that God is perfect and we are not. That God's standard is holiness and perfection and we do not meet that standard. And that's why Christ came. See, Christ was perfect even though we were not perfect. And Christ was perfect in every way, shape, and form so that he might die on the cross for our sins that he would be buried and raised from the grave three days later. And in doing those things, what he did is he took the punishment and the penalty for our sin. He quite literally took our sin off of us. And when he took our sins off of us, he put his righteousness on us. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And that's where salvation comes from. It doesn't come from discipline. It doesn't come from godliness. It doesn't come from the laboring and the striving. Those are, those are the byproducts. Those are the, the things that should come out of our salvation by grace through faith. And when we, when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we trust in Him wholly and we allow God to do a work in our lives and we, and we do the things and then because of that we labor and we strive, then we get to go and share that faith and share that truth with other people. But it has to start with us giving our life to Jesus. So I want to challenge you today. If you are not a believer, and you're here and you're visiting and we're glad you're here and I don't know who drug you, but I'm glad they drug you here. Don't leave here today thinking that I'm telling you to do gooder. This is not about you doing better and trying harder. What I'm telling you today is surrender your life to Jesus. Make Him the Lord and the Savior of your life. Believe in Him and put your faith and your trust in Him. And if you do that, you will be saved. For the believer in this room, I want to encourage you today. Labor and strive. Do the work. God has a reason that you are here. And there is a, God has an intention for your life. And he wants you to walk in that. But, but when we labor and when we strive, we get to the place where we can do those things in ways that we didn't even know we could. Ultimately, what is really happening as we labor and strive is we are make, letting God do more and us do less. And we will grow, we will progress, and we will see the lost get found. And that's why we're here. Let's pray together. My God, my exceeding joy. Lord, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, I pray that we will take the words of Scripture here seriously. Lord, we know that we are saved by grace through faith, or hopefully we know that we are saved by grace through faith and that it is apart from works so that we can't boast. But God, the scriptures also say that you have have laid out good works for us to do. And God, I pray that we would be a people ready and willing to discipline our bodies, to be disciplined for the sake of godliness, that we would labor and strive, be absorbed, practice these things so that we can do everything to do with excellence and out of our love for you. God, we thank you for these things. 
And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.